spiritual side of XR, the prayer that they, 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 they say before risking arrest together. Salvatore D went straight from that jail to, rhymes with Gale, straight from that jail to the microphone to give you the uh, news from the natural world. Thank you, Savi. Shilpa Narayan, Shilpa from the Stop Shopping Choir, uh, singing while well, we composed that song about the storm after another hurricane, Florence in North Carolina. You remember that one? I missed something, haven't I? Oh yes, the Fiery Eagles of Justice. Well, that's Jason Candler, the editor of this Earth Riot half hour. Thank you, Jason. And on drums, Brendan Burke. And I took the vocals of that ridiculous lecture on how we are screwing up. So thank you, everybody. We're just our hearts and our thoughts, our prayers are with all the people in harm's way right now. We hope you can somehow be safe and dry and warm. Everybody, thank you. This is Reverend Billy. Some of you will be joining me tomorrow here at the Earth Church in the East Village, 3 p.m. in downtown New York. Somebody give me an earth hallelujah. This is Roger Fisher from Heart. You're listening to 90.7 KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. Tell your friends to listen on in and support the mass movement of the human tribe. My name is Joseph Gallivan. You're listening to Art Focus on KBOO Portland. My guest this week is Mary Weaver Chapin. She's the curator of prints and drawings at the Portland Art Museum. And she's talking about Madonna of the Magnificat, a painting by Sandro Botticelli, which is on display now through May 7th in the European Gallery. Thanks very much for doing Art Focus, Mary. Great to see you again, Joseph. Thanks for the invitation. So the museum just had this amazing painting land in its lap a few <laughs> months ago, and you put it up a few weeks ago, right? Yes, it's just it's new to our walls, and every so often we will have a lender make an offer to loan uh, a really extraordinary work. We try to plan those in advance, but this was such a great opportunity that we dropped everything and came up with a team to see if we could make it happen. It's such a beautiful painting, it's an important painting, and we uh, scrambled to get it installed and beautifully lit and some panels prepared so the public can come enjoy it. It's a Madonna and child. Madonna is sort of central, child's on her lap, and then there are three people to the left, and the Madonna is writing in a book, and the child is holding a pomegranate. Who are the three characters on the left? Well, the three characters on the left are angels, and 
This painting, I should begin by saying, is a variation of the artist's most famous religious painting, also called the Madonna of the Magnificat, that hangs in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. It's nearly four feet across in diameter. Now, as you can see, this is a smaller version. And instead of just reducing the size of his uh, first version, he changed the composition. So here the figures on the left are three angels, and they are attending to the virgin and child. One of them is uh, on bended knee. He holds the inkwell into which the virgin dips her quill pen. And as you said, she is in the process of writing. And what she's writing is the Magnificat, which is also known as the Song of Mary or the Canticle of Mary. And it comes from the New Testament. And many uh, listeners, especially those who went to Catholic school, will know exactly what that is. Like me. <laughs> yes, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll quiz you. It's um, Mary's song where she proclaims um, when meeting her kinswoman, Elizabeth, she says, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And it's a hymn of praise uh, that was widely used in the church then and now. So I bet you can find someone who can sing it for you. It's usually sung at Vespers. And it is one of these um, great canticles of the New Testament. So what we see here is uh, the Virgin, Mary, is pausing in her writing to dip her pen into the inkwell as she writes in this beautiful book. And if you come closer, let's take a look at the, the book. Um, so as we step closer, you can see that she's writing in a, um, a beautiful book with gilded edges, and it has gold clasps for when it's closed. So the artist put some effort into um, describing a luxurious book. And you can see, too, that it has illustrated initials, first initials. Can you make that out where the the writing, the first letter on each page is beautifully ornamented. Mm -hmm. She is writing with her right hand, and you'll notice that the Christ child is placing his chubby little baby hand on top of her arm. And that's meant to symbolize a, a couple things. One is that the, um, the Christ child is guiding her writing, and also sort of the perfect unity between the divine and the human. So it's this beautiful symbolism of inspiration. In the uh, story, Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, yes. who's already pregnant, and she tells Elizabeth, I'm gonna have a baby, and the child leapt for joy in Elizabeth's womb. Yes, exactly, you remember, that is the exact moment. One of the reasons we were so eager to get this painting installed before Christmas is that it was it's a wonderful Christmas picture. It's all about the, um, the arrival of the Christ child. The Magnificat talks about Mary as a handmaiden of the Lord. And it's just such a, a beautiful image, um, so harmoniously constructed within this circular frame. What's the idea of having her writing the prayer, which, you know, it doesn't fit in with history or... Right, it is a curious, isn't it? So typically in representations of the Madonna, we see her um, in prayer, um, we see her with the Christ child, and frequently we see her with a book. You can probably imagine images where she's holding a little hymnal or prayer book. And this is quite unusual because we see her not as a reader, but as a writer. And there has been some um, excellent scholarly inquiry 
into what this could mean in Florence at the time. What did it mean for a woman to be a writer? And one scholar has made a very convincing case that Botticelli is responding to this new blossoming um, literary movement among elite women. So it could have reference to contemporary Florentine society. Uh, a less flattering uh, interpretation is that uh, you know, it was thought impossible that a woman would know how to write. So this is part of this rhetoric of impossibility. The only woman who could write would be the one who is perfect and um, pure above all others. And it shows a hint of the divine at work. Mm -hmm. So a lot of inter different interpretations, but it's um, a, a lovely gesture, and even if it is not chronologically correct. <laughs> The angels are dressed as people from Florence in 1400, right? Yes. They're in these tunics with a lot of sort of pleating and cinched waists and sort of padded arms and stuff. They do have green wings poking out the back, <laughs> but really they kind of look like, you know, girls from the market sort of hanging Yes. Out. Well, and ladies. Guess, well, it's ambiguous, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in fact, I've had people ask me both those things: who are those uh, women on the left side of the composition, and who are those men on the left side of composition? Um, but they are, in fact, angels. And one difference between this painting and the first one that Botticelli did of this theme um, is that this painting has just three angels versus five, and he also added wings. So in the Renaissance, sometimes angels were depicted without wings, which is a little bit surprising, I think, to us as, as we think. But there are theological implications. Someone wiser than I would have to, to go into that about when angels were depicted with wings and without. But I like your point that you notice their costumes. And how would you describe their, their dress or their fabrics? It's very sumptuous, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You get Could a hint. Velvet. velvet, yes, silks. There's gold edging on the sleeves. One of them has, one of the angels has a beautiful gold collar. So they are seen as very um, sumptuous creatures. And also the artist has paid great attention to detail. So it's not just the idea of suggesting, oh, there are angels in, they're each clad in a different color, red, blue, or yellow, but picking out the details on the sleeve, the suggestion of the rustling fabrics, the, the feel of the, the collars against the skin is really remarkable. Okay. People would know Botticelli's two big paintings, The Birth of Venus and Spring, and those are um, sort of pagan imagery. Absolutely. With a lot of emphasis on skin texture, mm -hmm. um, sort of beautiful human forms, landscape, nature. Where does this fit into that? This is more directly Christian. Yes, well, I'm glad you brought that up. They all come from about the same time in the 18, excuse me, in the 1480s. And What's significant about the two large secular paintings you mentioned is that those were uh, commissioned by the Medici family. Botticelli had, um, he had their patronage, which afforded him some security and really allowed him to experiment. So the two paintings you mentioned, The Birth of Venus and Spring, are complex allegories or symbols of secular topics and would have been much more unusual than what you and I are looking at now, which is uh, the traditional Christian theme. So I would say that 
the religious iconography was really his bread and butter, while those other works were a chance more to experiment. He also was a very, very skilled uh, portraitist. And I think you see it in this painting, because although we haven't, neither you nor I, Joseph, have met any of the people visited depicted here, they're each individuals. And if you walked by, say, that angel in yellow on the sidewalk, you would recognize him, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the eye color and shape is, is individual in each one. Two of the angels have these halos that are like uh, straight lines, almost like a mohawk. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One of them doesn't, presumably because the other people are crowding around mm -hmm. that angel. And then Mary has has the same halo. And you see too that there are little um, squiggles, they almost look like shoots of fire yeah. in gold coming yeah. from the Christ child's head. He has like an unformed halo. <laughs> like He's working on it. Halo. He's working yeah. on it. Um, and visitors when they come to see the painting will notice that the, um, that the figures are all ensconced in this round frame that echoes the dome of heaven. So above them are gold rays coming down, the suggestions of uh, almost like little bursts of fiery flame. Um, and it could represent, you know, the divine, the connection um, above, and sort of the spiritual energy. It's, it's quite beautiful to see it used as halos, but then again also in the costuming. Did you notice it on the Virgin's veil too, the gold, use of gold? Mm -hmm. what, what kind of gold paint is that? Well, it would probably have been applied with gold leaf. Um, I would have to ask the conservator. This is not a strength of mine. But it speaks to how precious this painting was uh, to use materials that were both rare and expensive. It also speaks to the artist's skill. If you come close, you can see how the Virgin's, uh, she's wearing a transparent veil. And just the edges have this indication of a fine golden edge. Um, there's a decorative pattern in her mantle and on the seams. And it's just astounding the detail and precision that they could create um, all these years ago. Mm -hmm. These are brushes with sort of almost individual hairs. <laughs> yes. But is yes. it oil? Um, yes, it's oil on panel. So it's on a wood panel, not canvas. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's really astounding is if you start to ask yourself to pick out the different textures, you see everything from this wonderful baby flesh of the Christ child um, to hard materials like the throne or low stool that the Madonna sits on, even the crinkle of the manuscript she writes on, the feeling of the quill pen. Uh, he evokes our senses, so it's sight, but it's also touch. Yeah, the throne is this carved gold, sort of florid um, decoration, kind of like the frame. Mm -hmm. Do we know anything about the frame? You know, I'm sorry that I don't. Um, it's, uh, it's in keeping with the style of the time. Um, as I said, this loan came in to us under short notice, so we didn't have time to research the frame, so I can't tell you the date, but it's exactly in keeping with um, what would have been um, perfectly suited for this sort of object. So the repeating motif of round frame, this rich uh, round frame that 
has um, round shapes in it. There are pine cones, there are fruits, there's a rosette sort of pattern in the chair. And then um, sort of hidden in plain sight is a pomegranate, a round pomegranate that the Christ child and Virgin are sort of holding together in their left hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see some of the seeds mm -hmm. poking out. Yes, and the pomegranate was a symbol um, for a number of different things. It was frequently used in ancient cultures it, um, as a sign of fertility, you know, all those seeds. It was also used as a symbol for Christ's suffering, you know, as like drops of blood. It, it plays a number of different roles here. My name is Joseph Gallivan. You're listening to Art Focus on KBOO Portland. My guest this week is Mary Weaver Chapin. She is the curator of prints and drawings at the Portland Art Museum. And she's talking about Madonna of the Magnificat by Sandro Botticelli, which is on view at the museum through May the 7th. Mary is wearing um, a traditional blue cloak, but underneath she has this bright red kind of velvet mm, tunic. Mm -hmm. And then, surprise, surprise, around her head, she's got a kind of pashmina. <laughs> it looks like yeah. she's just come from a music festival. She's got like this plaid scarf around her head. Could be a kefir, you know. Was there much leeway? for what, how you could dress your, oh, your Madonna? That's a great question. Well, um, she's dressed traditionally in the sense of that she's frequently seen with a red dress and a blue cloak. But the details you point out are very astute because Botticelli has included contemporary details in this ancient uh, image or this time period. So the scarf she wears around her head is, uh, she's is very fashionable. It's probably based on Byzantine designs. So while it's not unusual to see Mary in a cloak or a, a headdress like that, the um, style, stylish way it is wrapped and the particular colors and patterns are something that Botticelli picked up on his own and added. And you can say the same thing about uh, some of the other details, if you look at the fine buttons on her sleeve or the nature of ornament, he's looking both to um, historic traditions but also picking up on contemporary Florentine fashions. So when you say he's looking at Byzantine fashions, what era would Byzantine be? Um, so Byzantine refers to the era of the early church, so mm -hmm. about like 400, 400, exactly, yeah. 400 and on into the um, medieval period. And so Botticelli was looking also, you know, he wasn't, clearly he wasn't the only one working in town to see what other artists were doing. And he had the good fortune of being trained by one of the best or perhaps the best painter of the previous generation, um, uh, Filippo Lippi. And so you see some of Lippi's style in this, this beautiful elongated figures. Do you notice how the proportions seem so elegant and these are not, you know, fat, stubby angels. They mm -hmm. have, have these long necks, these elegant limbs, and everything is a bit attenuated and ideal beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the background, there's this kind of, you know, Mona Lisa kind of <laughs> dark landscape mm -hmm. with a river and hills and trees. Um, are we supposed to be looking out on a out of a window ourselves? 
people, what, what are we supposed to be thinking about the background? Yes, and it's a great question because our eye is immediately drawn to the captivating figures and their bright colors, but the artist took great pains to frame them in a certain city, sitting. Um, can you see that it looks like they're almost underneath an archway? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like we are looking through this arch out into a um, pastoral landscape. Uh, it certainly isn't Bethlehem. It looks just like maybe a Florentine <laughs> landscape. Chianti uh, Shire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a couple things going on there is one that the goal as a devotional painting is to encourage connection between the viewer and the figures in the painting. And I think that by suggesting some contemporary items of clothing and placing them as if they could be just next door, it makes the viewer um, feel closer and identify with the figures more. So mm -hmm. rather than putting them in a Middle Eastern landscape or in ancient clothing, uh, the artist brings them that much closer to our own reality. Now, that effect would have been very strong in Florence in uh, 1480, but less so now in 2023 in Portland, of course. Mm -hmm. So these, this painting was a, was a kind of a spin-off, uh, kind mm -hmm. of a small copy of something bigger, which is in the Uffizi in Florence. But these round paintings were painted to go in a, a nobleman's home. Yes. Um, right there, devotional objects. Mm-hmm. This wasn't to go to church. Exactly. A lot of people ask, you know, what church is this from? Where was this an altar? But a round painting like this and something of this scale would have been a private commission. And round paintings were typically hung in bedrooms and uh, hung high on the wall. So I, it wouldn't be very friendly to our visitors, but I was thinking that we should have hung it much higher so we could have gotten that perspective. Oh, do you think they look a bit shorter? From um, I think people? that, well, I would encourage people when they come and if they to aren't too embarrassed, yeah. And you do experience the perspective a little bit different. I, I see it especially in the Christ child's head. The proportions, I think, are more um, harmonious from, oh. viewed from underneath. What's your take? Now I can see all the cracks <laughs> in the panel. Well, we also call that a, a raking view because to see all the blemishes, you have to, you have to do that. You have to move around. So mm -hmm. we, we've put it in the best flattering light mm -hmm. possible. But an object this old will naturally have cracks and... Mm -hmm. um, so around the top and the right-hand side, there's a brown area, and I, I can't tell, is that just bare board or is that part of the painting? Ah, um, let's see, where, where are you pointing? Right, right here. Yes, that's part of the painting. That's meant to indicate the arch under which they're sitting. Oh, it's okay. also the least interesting part of the painting. So you, um, you see how he's trying to focus our eye inward. There's nothing on the edge to distract us. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in fact, if the eye wanders, we get bored and come right back to mm -hmm. the central figure. At the bit where the sky, this curved sky goes mm -hmm. down behind Mary's left arm, there's this brown thing. No, is that a rabbit? A I, dinosaur? Well, I would... A coffee stain? 
I don't know. I'm, I want your listeners to come see the painting and then tell me um, because it doesn't really resolve into a shape. And what I'd like to see is all the variations of this painting lined up and maybe it's a detail he took from another hmm. that didn't fi finally resolve or... Um, it could just be a stain, right? It, yeah, well, it? let's see. I'm getting a little closer now. It looks like it's under the varnish, so um, I imagine, yeah, yep, but who knows what he was thinking. Now, this might be a good time also to mention that ideas of authorship were quite different uh, in, in the Renaissance than they are today. So while this is definitely by Botticelli, he almost certainly had studio assistants who worked with him. Mm -hmm. And experts believe that this is almost entirely by his hand, but the artist may have had a studio assistant work on the landscape or on less important parts of the composition. Mm -hmm. And sometimes um, when we can tell the quality isn't there, instead of saying it would be by Botticelli, we would say circle of or workshop of. But this oh, is okay. fully given to Botticelli. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. right. So this is one of the better of the seven. Yes. It, um, it is one of the best preserved, together with the one in the Uffizi, and it's considered one of the most skillful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I should also mention, too, that by the time workshop assistants got to the level when they were allowed to paint, they were extremely skilled. Mm -hmm. So it took them years and years and years and years. It wasn't just, um, you know, grab a brush and see what you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How has it survived 600 years of smoke and you know, yeah. sun, daylight? Well, actually, the, the, um, the biggest threat to it is water. And that could either be through flooding or even through atmospheric conditions. Because this is painted on wood, and wood is, uh, is a porous substance, every time it would get humid, you know, the wood expands. And then when it dries out, it contracts. Um, and that leads to flaking. And flaking is the biggest danger for a lot of these paintings. I don't know much of the ownership history of this. It's beautifully preserved. You can see um, some cracking. And that's fine as long as the pigment doesn't lift. So it's stable. You can see it on the Christ child's torso. Um, but it's remarkably well preserved and the uh, the, the cracks that do exist don't distract from the composition. Mm -hmm. In some paintings, the cracks take over and that's all you see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Botticelli was like, went out of fashion pretty quickly, right? Yeah, and, isn't that and surprising? he was like rediscovered by the Pre-Raphaelites in the 19th century. It's hard to imagine this being out of style, but you're exactly right. By the time um, he lived a, a good long life, and in his later years he was being overtaken, he was being replaced by the new generation, uh, and he fell out of fashion. And it wasn't until the 19th century when the, a group of British artists decided that what was really the high point in art was not the work of Michelangelo and Raphael, but it was everything that came before Raphael, as you said. And they called themselves the Pre-Raphaelites. And so there was a Botticelli sort of renaissance. Mm -hmm. it, it's striking how many times in art history um, that happens, that an artist will disappear or fall out of fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, the same could be said for Vermeer or Rembrandt even. It's, I mean, it's just amazing it survived, right? If something's yeah. unfashionable, mm -hmm. it ends up on the bonfire you know, <laughs> after a while. But I guess 
Maybe it was just in one house. Well, I suspect years. it was kept um, in, in a private family collection. We, the uh, provenance records or the records of its ownership are fairly, are very clear for the 20th century, but it's a good chance that it was just in a, an Italian or, or European household that was passed down for generations, maybe hanging on a wall, um, not particularly noticed. What was it with the pre-Raphaelites that they were attracted to? I would think Michelangelo is better than this. Well, isn't that interesting? They found a, a greater purity and um, a, a more of a stylized uh, form that they, they recognized um, and that they felt was, well, let me put it another way. They felt by the time you get to Raphael and Michelangelo that it was sort of um, overdone. The figures were too muscular, they were too sculptural, where this was the perfect mm -hmm. refinement mm -hmm. uh, between the sculptural and the linear beauty. But I, I'd take Michelangelo's hands over these hands. <laughs> I'll take this one. We can, that way we don't have to fight. I'm, a pre, I'm probably a pre-Raphaelite at heart, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is such a beautiful piece, and the colors of the, the gold, the violets, and the, and the sort of cherry red angels, it's quite amazing. It's also beautiful, the effects of light. So you see how it interacts with the different skin tones, how it's reflected or refracted. Um, you can tell he wasn't just using the same tube of paint. You I mean, wouldn't have had a tube of paint, mm -hmm. but the same pigment to uh, color everyone the same color. But really, they, as I said before, they're very much individuals. Mm -hmm. And the way the light hits the skin is so beautiful. If someone comes and sees this and is inspired to explore the, either that era or Botticelli mm -hmm. further, where, what would you suggest they, they, where would they go? Well, you know, the nice thing is that there are tons of resources because he's one of these greats from, from art history. So I like to send people to the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's always a solid. Um, I also recommend going to the Uffizi website and that is um, in Florence, Italy, but they have all their texts in English as well. And they have really good panels that tell you about the artist and about history, and you can click through and see you know, different time periods of their uh, career. Mm -hmm. So, um, And also Netflix. And Netflix, I am told, but I have not yet seen, there is a series on the Medici, and they wrote in um, the figure of Sandro Botticelli. And uh, a friend of mine who's seen it told me not to waste my time, but I certainly will. <laughs> I want to see the, the Botticelli figure in, in the Netflix. My name is Joseph Gallivan. You've been listening to Art Focus on KBOO Portland. My guest this week was Mary Weaver Chapin. She's the curator of prints and drawings at the Portland Art Museum. And she was talking about Madonna of the Magnificat, a painting by Sandro Botticelli, which is on view now through May the 7th. Thanks very much for doing Art Focus again, Mary. Oh, In my person. pleasure. Thank you, Joseph. Andy
KOO Portland por el 90.7 FM. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Hoy martes 24 de enero del 2023. 